This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psycho-spiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul. From Hospice Chaplains and Audio Hive Podcasting Studios in Joliet, Illinois, this is the Hospice Chaplains Show. I'm Saul Abema. And I'm Joe Newton. Our guest today is Dr. Jim DeMaine. He's the author of Facing Death, Finding Dignity, Hope, and Healing at the End. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Could you give our listeners a little background? Uh, Where did you grow up? Well, I uh, grew up in Ohio, actually, in in Akron, Ohio. Spent most of the years there. And during World War II, my father was in the war, and he was down in southern Ohio in Logan. And then after the war, we moved up to Akron. He was a family physician, a very old-style doctor. So I I grew up in a very middle-class type home uh, with a family doc as a father. So that, that was my role model growing up. So uh, you on the hospice chaplain, Sean, we always like to ask our guests, what was the spiritual background of your childhood? Well, my, my parents um, both were of the Swedenborgian religion, uh, the Christian religion um, that uh, is based on the Bible uh, and uh, follows the, the teachings of Emanuel Swedenborg, a Swedish scientist and philosopher, from the 1700s, who wrote, he was breaking away from the Lutheran concept of faith alone as the saving factor, and he wrote uh, extensively uh, about the Bible. And so I, I grew up in a very religious, um, religious home atmosphere, which was uh, very nurturing to me. Do you still maintain that uh, faith tradition? Yes, um, my wife and I both. Uh, consider our Swedenborgian, but we we really believe that you know if, if we look at the Lord's mercy, uh, it encompasses all religion, and mm-hmm. religion is the way you 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 live your life. Exactly. So it's then contributed to your understanding of your book, then. Yes, it's it's not a religious book uh, per se, but uh, I think uh, it affects. Affected all during my medical practice, my uh, ethical approach to patients, and um, you know, I was I was interviewed a, a number of years ago um, by a, a, a host here in Seattle on NPR, and and she asked me, Doctor Demanio, what is a good death? And I, I think around the time of dying, if we can have a sense of spiritual peace as well as having our natural, oh, you know, cares taken care of, I think if we can have um, some kind of spiritual sense of comfort and being comforted by those, the loved ones around us, um, that was, I think that that helped me to focus during my medical practice. And your medical practice, I, I'm assuming, is was very lengthy, and were you in a specialty, or were you a internist, a... 
I went to medical school uh, before intensive care units, before dialysis, before hospice. Uh, so I, I trained in the, in the 1960s, actually. I'm 82 years old now. And um, I, uh, I went on to medical school at the University of Pennsylvania and then went to New York for my internship and then went overseas for two years to Afghanistan in the public health service taking care of Peace Corps volunteers. That was a wonderful period of life for my wife and myself. And then went back and trained in internal medicine uh, at Wisconsin. And I was thinking of just kind of going into medical practice there, but I, I, I got very interested in infectious disease. So I mm -hmm. came out to Seattle to do a postdoctoral fellowship. And then when I was doing that, I went to a tuberculosis hospital uh, here and ran the admitting ward. And while I was there, I became very interested in lung disease and pulmonary disease. So I actually ended up taking my boards in, in both in internal medicine and pulmonary disease. And around that time, critical care units started developing. You know, when I was in medical school, we didn't, or in my training, early training, we didn't even have intensive care units. We didn't have hospice. End of life was something we just didn't talk about much. So I, as I got into pulmonary medicine, critical care came along, and uh, 1987 was the first time they offered critical care boards. So that's kind of where I, I focused my practice, was in pulmonary and critical care medicine. So I was around death and dying a lot, obviously, being with very seriously ill people. Um, and um, that that focus for me is, is one that I continued. And the reason that I ended up writing the book and is that I had so many people I was taking care of that had given no thought about the kind of care they wanted toward the end of their life. Um, so I would be taking care of patients in the intensive care unit or hooked up to machines and the families were in a quandary as to how much they would want done, you know, would they want dialysis, would they want their heart shocked, would they want to keep going on the ventilator, um, and so actually I worked with a social worker, we developed a, a, a kind of a, a protocol for having family conferences and shared decision making, trying, trying to reach these goals, and it, I tend to think in stories, so I started just writing stories uh, about my encounters with patients and families and others. And, and some of the stories are, are from my own family because, you know, each each of our own families uh, is uh, a rich trove of, of stories for all of us. Mm -hmm. And so I, um, I, I, I continue to uh, contribute a little bit to my blog from time to time. Um, but then as a publisher and said, you know, you ought to, think about putting this into a book form. So that's ultimately where I, I wound up. I've been retired now. Um, well, I'm 82. I retired when I was 65, but I've been speaking in the community. Uh, I, I worked for an organization much like uh, Kaiser Permanente. It was called Group Health of Puget Sound. And we developed a program. So everybody, when they turned 65, all the patients in the health plan, were invited in for a, a discussion about advanced care planning, and and uh, it was called Your Life, Your Choices. And uh, so 
in my, in my retirement, I've been uh, speaking and, and doing some interviews like this, but just trying to get the word out about advanced care planning and then connecting with others that are doing the same kind of thing. So it's been very energizing for me. I feel like I'm still practicing in a way, but <laughs> in, in less stressful, I'm not getting calls in the middle of the night and dealing with uh, acute end-of-life issues. But have you had the, have you had those discussions with your family? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. My 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 kids know they've uh, they've talked to me, and my my wife and I have have written down our our wishes. I I really encourage people not to just rely on forms uh, because checkbox forms can handle all the nuances and contingencies things that might happen and so we wrote out uh, kind of an essay and we attached that to our advanced directives about our quality of life and and that you know quality of life is more important than quantity and mm-hmm. and you know being able to recognize our loved ones and not being in some kind of per- persistent vegetative state where we have a feeding tube in so we we've had these conversations and my my kids are on board so I'm I'm hoping for no conflict for us at the end, but <laughs> you, you never know for sure. But um, the other thing we've done uh, is fill out what's called a post form. Um, mm-hmm. In some states, it's called a MOLST. Uh, it's a physician orders for life-sustaining treatment. And that um, it, it's kind of difficult at my age of 82. Would I really, if my heart stopped, would I want the medics to come and do heart shocks and CPR? And, you know, my wife and I recently made the decision saying, well, you know, having your heart stop isn't a bad way to go. Um, and uh, the it, it's an individual decision. It's it's something that, you know, you need to sit down one-on-one with your doctor. And the, the power of the Polster or Most form is that it, it's signed by you and your physician. So it's mutually agreed upon plan for emergencies. I call it the 911 form. If you look at the statistics uh, about CPR and heart shocks in, in advanced age, it's not very good. No. Maybe one out of 10 might survive and you might survive long enough to go to a nursing home and have, you know, um, brain impairment and, and have a quality of life that might not be very enjoyable at all. Mm-hmm. So there comes a time when we have to think about, okay, you know, I've lived a full life. What would I, what would I really want? And I, I live in a retirement community now, so I have discussions with our my my fellow residents and and some people that are transitioning over to hospice or to um, um, assisted care or memory care, and. Uh, so I, I'm kind of used as a, as an internal resource here where I live. Uh-huh. So uh, in your formative years in the 1960s, uh, there was a strong denial of death within the medical establishment. And uh, where where did that switch come in for you? As I read your title, Facing Death, uh, where did that come in for you where you're able to embrace it and talk about it? Yeah, I, I was taught by some pretty prominent, uh, well-known physicians when I was in medical school that if somebody had cancer, you, you never told the patient. 
you, you would only tell the family and, and they would try to make plans because somehow if you if you mention death, you might make it happen or it might be too upsetting to the person. They It was very paternalistic time of where we didn't engage the autonomy of patients very well. And uh, it, it was felt that we needed to protect them. If, if um, they were dying, you, you, you did not mention it. Um, and that... That certainly changed so much uh, when the hospice movement came along, when Kubler-Ross uh, talked about death and dying, and it, it, it began to open up. And, uh, I, you know, the baby boomers seemed to have something to do with that. You know, as that generation came along, they wanted much more open discussion. And um, it's... Now, you know, they have death cafes where people can go and discuss end of life. And there's actually a website called Let's Have Dinner and Talk About Death where people will get together, you know, relatively strangers over the, over the dinner table and talk about it. But, uh, yeah, it was, um, it was not until, I mean, I never had any trouble personally talking to patients about death because I up we were talking about medical issues around the dining room table with my dad and I, <laughs> I would follow him around on house calls he, he would uh, go into nursing homes and and I would follow along with him so I, I had a comfort and I I would see I remember one surgeon when I was a senior in medical school it was a lady that came in with very advanced breast cancer she had been in denial about her own cancer and it had widely spread you could just see it uh, in her exam and she had lymph nodes all over her back and so I examined her and I was kind of appalled at the findings and the, the delay in the diagnosis and so my professor came in, and there's now a whole building and institute named for him. And uh, he, he examined her and had wonderful bedside manner. And he said, you know, my dear, yeah, you have this cancer, but thank goodness you got to me in time. So he was not willing to be honest. Uh, he, he felt paternalistic again that he had to protect this woman from the knowledge that she had a very serious problem. Yeah, with that, let's take our first break. I'll introduce again. Our guest is Dr. Jim DeMaine. He's the author of Facing Death. We'll be right back. We've been waiting, waiting for COVID-19 vaccines to be developed. Now, waiting for them to get to us. But you can do more than wait. You have powerful ways to help slow the spread right now and protect your family and loved ones, too. Here's how. Watch your distance. Stay at least six feet away from folks you don't live with. It's risky to be indoors with them, too. And, of course, avoid crowds. Also, wear a mask. CDC reports masks protect the people who wear them and folks around them. And wash your hands using soap and water for 20 seconds. And do it frequently. Vaccines won't make COVID go away overnight. But they give us a real chance to finally overcome it. As long as we keep watching our distance, wearing our masks, and washing our hands. Learn more about vaccines at cdc.gov slash coronavirus. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. 
I'm Sole Bam, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We are continuing our conversation with Dr. Jim DeMain. Uh, just um, how big was your father's influence on your practice as a physician? Well, he, it was kind of by osmosis. You know, you, you don't really know when you have a mentor like that, the impact it's having on you. I, I always thought he worked too hard, and I'd never want to be a doctor and have to work that hard. But, you know, I used to follow him around on house calls and watch him disappear into a home with a black bag. And I'd, I'd wait in the car. We, we had spotlights on the car and those things so that we could uh, pick out the house numbers. We would drive to parts of town that I didn't know anything about. And when he would come back out from the house, I'd, I'd always ask him if he gave the person a shot because I was always interested in what he, what he did as a doctor. So... Yeah, just uh, following him along, I, I, I decided ultimately that, you know, I didn't want to go into business. I, I didn't want to uh, go into law or engineering or anything like that. And so I, I guess I kind of backed into saying, well, this is I, this is really, really what I want to do. And uh, I, I, I thought about going into practice with him. Um, but as I was specializing in things like pulmonary and infectious disease, uh, that wouldn't have been a very good combined practice. And I, we had moved out to Seattle by that time, but so I, that, you know, that never worked out, but we stayed, stayed very close. And, um, he, uh, as he aged, um, he, I, he cut down his medical practice and, and began to do nursing home rounding. We, we kept in, in close touch. And then um, he actually uh, became more ill and, and uh, wound up in, in a nursing home himself. And uh, I would go visit him and take him out to a restaurant. And then as he was aging more, my sister moved him to a, a nursing home in Western Pennsylvania. And again, we stayed in close contact, but the way he passed away uh, to me showed some of the complications of end-of-life care, and I write about that in, in my book because he, he had always said that he didn't want any heroics at the end. He wanted to, to die a natural death, and he was up in his early 90s by this time and didn't have dementia, but he was very weak, and he was in, in a wheelchair because of spinal stenosis, and he had heart failure. And I got a call from my sister who said, Dad is is uh, not eating very well and he's losing some weight. And uh, I said, well, you know, he is 93 years old and, and these things start happening. And she said, well, I had the doctor do a whole body CAT scan. I said, well, you know, why, why did you do that? And, and she said, well, we're wondering what's going on. And they found a little spot on one of his kidneys. And and my sister said, uh, shouldn't it be biopsied? It might be a cancer. And I said, well, you know, he is 93 and one little spot on his kidney, uh, even if it is a small cancer, couldn't be causing this symptom, this problem of losing weight. So he went on and then, and then uh, he started losing some more weight and then he quit drinking or he's drinking very little. And I knew the end was coming, so I flew out uh, 
through this little town outside of Pittsburgh. And there was a wonderful uh, religious order, a uh, little nursing home and, and had a lot of just very good people from, from the town to, to be the aides. And they, we set up a bridge table in his room and they would serve us meals and, uh, the doc would come in and, you know, they pray around the bed. Uh, and it's just a very nice atmosphere. It's nice music going. And uh, uh, we basically uh, just let dad go in a natural way. And I, I set up a cot in the room. I could sleep there at night. And I actually heard him take his, his last breath. It was, it was very, very powerful. Um, but one of the relatives said, there's a culture of death here. You know, why didn't you give him IVs? Why didn't you put in a feeding tube? And I said, well, that wasn't dad's wish. Dad's wish was to go and hopefully to join mom uh, in heaven. And, and uh, there comes a time. Until Gurundi writes about that in his book called Letting Go. You know, when is there a time that we need to let go? Uh, and and with modern medical technology, um, we can always find another treatment for you. We can always find another chemotherapy. We can always find a dialysis. We can use artificial feeding and nutrition. And, you know, dad didn't want any of those kind of interventions. And that's a real ethical dilemma in modern medicine now is how, how much are we going to push with technology and how much are we going to say, Maybe it's time to step back. Maybe it's time to just let nature take its course here. But that takes sometimes a lot of effort on the family to come to that understanding. And I had an occasion once where I was a chaplain in a hospital where I was called to the emergency room. And this woman had had a stroke, a severe stroke. And the son was talking to me saying, you know, I've got to get all I can to have mom taken care of. I've got to have it taken care of. Got to have it taken care of. And I looked at her and I saw the situation. And from my vantage point, uh, there was no point, quite frankly. Yeah. I was in the emergency room. I got called back to that same patient later in the week. I think it was Friday. I was on call again, and I got called in, and then that's when the son came and sat down with me and said, do you think it's time for me to pull the plug, more or less saying? Yeah. And then I had also found out that this, his mother had severe dementia, and I thought, well, you know, you put those two equations together, and what do you come up with? Uh, there's no quality of life. There's, I know. There's no, there's no and, and I'm like shaking my head like, why can't you see that? But, but our society doesn't do that very well. It's very hard. You're switching gears. It's kind of like an existential switch of doing everything and you have the person there. And, and we're, we're afraid of death in a way. You know, mm -hmm. I, I say in my book, we only die once. We don't get any practice at this. And so it's, it's, it's going to be a very, I mean, even though I write about it and think about it, it's, it's very strange when I think about my own, mm -hmm. what's it really going to be like? But, you know, I had a similar situation with, I was on call in the hospital for admissions, and it was a lady with dementia in, in a nursing home, and she hadn't recognized her family in years. Her bone marrow was failing. She wasn't able to make red blood cells anymore. 
So she was being progressively anemic, and they were not allowed to give blood transfusions in a nursing home. So she had to be brought into the emergency room every two weeks to get a transfusion. But having dementia, if they tried to put needles in her to do transfusion, she would just go berserk, basically, and require sedation. And then she wasn't in shape to send back to the nursing home, so she'd get admitted to the hospital. And this happened multiple times. So I decided to have a family conference. I said, I really need to talk to this family. Are transfusions really benefiting her? Because she hadn't recognized the family in years, and she was bedbound. And uh, so we had family conference, and the, the kids uh, were pretty much on board. But her husband, was who had early dementia himself, as it turns out, uh, as we got it deep into the conversation, he said, and, and I suggested that maybe it was time to stop the, the uh, interventions, he, he got up and stomped out and said, this is like DACA. And he, he shut the whole thing down. Wow. And so I, we were at the impasse. But so I said to the family, I said, well, how about if I meet with your dad the next day? And we'll just go one on one and I'll talk to him some more. And so I, I talked to Maury and I said, you know, the next day I said, you know, in, in medicine, we really don't want to harm people. One of our first principles is to do no harm. And uh, so I said, you know, these transfusions actually may be harming your wife. And he said, you know, I agree with you. I was so surprised (laughs) the other way the day before. And I said, why do you agree with me? He said, well, she might get AIDS. (laughs) That's what I have. It's called ethics on thin ice. (laughs) Because based on that kind of false premises, uh, we did stop the transfusions and she was able to die peacefully. But so medicine is strange. You know, each story is strange. Each individual is unique. Uh, and we, there is a, it, it's so difficult for some people to let go though. I had another one with a, a lady that had, was in a house fire and she severely burned, uh, and in the burn unit in a major trauma center here in Seattle. And, of course, they were doing multiple graphs. And she was up in her 80s, and she was on a respirator, on a ventilator. She had, you know, lung disease and heart disease and these, these severe burns. And they they were just keeping her going, keeping her going. And the, the family was so unhappy. They thought, you know, that she ought to be allowed to go. But the medical staff kept pushing. And so they demanded that she be transferred to my hospital. And so I, I got this call from the family before I even knew this patient existed. said, my mother is coming to your hospital today. You're going to be the attending doctor, and we want the ventilator removed. That was my initial <laughs> conversation with the family. And they, they were right, basically. So I said, meet me in the intensive care unit. Let's, let's talk about this. And... Um, uh, so when she got there, we had the chaplain and the social worker, and and of course the the two kids who were adamant that she was ready to pass on, and uh, so within about two hours of admission, after we really assessed the situation, we removed the ventilator and and allowed her to pass away peacefully. You know, seventy percent of the deaths in the intensive care unit are related to 
removing the ventilator. You know, we've done everything else possible, but you come to a time when it's time to remove the life support uh, when when we've done everything else. So whether it's a 19-year-old girl with cystic fibrosis or an end-stage 80-year-old, it's never never easy. No. But um, we, we worked out a, a system in the hospital to make it as comforting to the family as possible. You know, we what I would do is turn off all the monitors so the technology would go way down. We'd try to make it a home-like environment as possible. You know, remove the, give enough sedation, you know, remove the tubes, get the family back in right away so they could be, you know, people want to be surrounded by loved ones when they pass away. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's in hospice, I'm sure that's, that's a, a, a basic rule. And, and uh, so anyway, this lady with the, with the severe burns passed away peacefully. But the next day I got a call from the surgeon at the burn unit. How are the wounds doing? How are these grafts doing? Uh, I had to kind of say, well, uh, you know, we had to adhere to the wishes of the family and we let her die. And he he wasn't very happy. You know, he was ready to push on. So uh, this is why we need those advocates. We need the kids. We need our loved ones around us who really know what our wishes are. Uh, otherwise, we won't have a very dignified or healing kind of death. Yep. Yeah, with that, we'll take a little break. Our guest is Dr. Jim Demain, the author of Facing Death. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. This is Saul and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Uh, doctor, in your book, in page 33, you wrote about moral distress in the ICU. And you shared a little story of, of in room 8 where someone was about to die, but there was a lot of denial. And the person telling you says, it's nuts around here. Uh, can you talk to us about moral distress in the ICU from a physician's perspective? Yeah, it, it was a common problem because the nurses are on the front line. Uh, they are doing the total care of the patient. You know, they're doing all the body care, all the um, all the hands-on, all the cleanup, all the IVs. They have to chart things extensively, and they, they get a lot of pressure. Uh, put on them um, from um, families and from physicians. And one of, one of the issues in, in, I think, most intensive care units is sometimes the care is so prolonged and the specialists will come in and start dialysis on somebody with a, a stroke and, and near the end, or they want to put in a, a new pacemaker or uh, continue the ventilator way beyond, and so the, the nurses are are become very attached to the patient and and feel that 
what is being done is kind of morally wrong that they're 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 just pushing the technology too far and and also um i i think particularly during the covid epidemic uh that we've un- our whole country has been under some moral distress this past year because there's expectations being put on us that we can't meet and i i think that's one of the fundamental underlying factors of, of moral distress and it it's something that needs to be uh dealt with and and approached because otherwise you burn out uh and quit and i i think unfortunately we're seeing that happening in a nursing profession there needs to be a way to decompress and and to to not just be overwhelmed uh, we had a social worker that was very good at this it, it's kind of like mental health therapy you you go in and you you meet in groups and you talk it out and you you try to deal and resolve you know what issues you can uh, but um it it's a it's a real thing in high stress occupations uh, you see it in police departments fire departments and uh newspapers anybody that's really pushing people uh to their limits and and that's what happens i i think it happens to to doctors and others too but you know particularly the nurses that are dealing with the very very ill i am really curious because you live in a state that i believe has legal assisted death is that correct that's right yeah of uh, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, if uh, have you ever had a patient who said, uh, "Can you help me die?" Yes, and and uh, let me let me tell you a, a story um, about that, and then and then I'll talk about the, the death with dignity thing. But I, I kind of start the book with a, a fellow that that did exactly that. He had a very advanced emphysema. Uh, he would just gasp and, and, and be very uh, short of breath and, and suffering with his, his disease. And he required multiple hospitalizations when he would have these flare-ups. We would give him steroids and antibiotics. And he'd get back home, uh, and he, he lived by himself. His wife passed away, and he... Uh, he just wanted control at the end. He, he didn't want to suffer at the end. And so one day in the office, he said, hey, doc, I want to take you out to lunch. And, and I was afraid he was going to try to sell me something. <laughs> and, and what he was trying to sell me on was the way he wanted to, to die at the end. And he said, uh, I'm just like a fish out of water. I, I'm just so frightened. I'm panicked when these things happen. I, I want help at the end. And I said, well, I'm, I'm not Dr. Kevorkian, but there are things we can do to assist you. I said, the best drug at the end is morphine or morphine-type drug. And he said, well, what would that do? And I said, well, it would take away your shortness of breath. It would give you a sense of euphoria. It would make you sleepy and, 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 and peaceful. And he said, well, that's what I want. And I said, well... There is a downside to morphine because it might speed up your death by a matter of hours or even days. And he said, that's not important to me. He said, I I want to be comfortable as I die, and I know I'm getting near the end. And so I said, well, talk this over with your sons. I said, this this is an acceptable approach with medical societies. Uh, It's even supported um, by uh, 
like the Catholic organizations, is called the double effect. Uh, the double effect is when you're, the intent of using morphine at the end is to relieve the suffering. Uh, the intent is not to hasten death. It, it, it can sound like splitting hairs, but uh, it really comes down to intent. It's been tested in court, and, and it is um, perfectly acceptable. And so anyway, he, he went home, and then and during things were quiet for a couple of months, and then I got a call at home. Uh, right before Christmas, uh, very dark days in Seattle. And he, he, uh, the ER doc said that my patient was there and he was very ill. He couldn't breathe well at all. And they wanted to put him in the intensive care unit. And I said, I'm not sure he wants to go there. Let me come in and see him. So I did and got to the bedside and he looked me in the eye and he said, remember what we talked about? And, and so I reviewed the plan with him, and his son was there again. And we did not put him in the intensive care unit. We put him on a medical floor. Good. Fortunately, I had some very senior nurses were there, and they were on board with giving him uh, a little uh, morphine drip with small boluses. And um, he, he became very peaceful, and, and the kid, his son stayed with him, and he died about 3 or 4 in the morning. But later, I got a letter from his son saying, you know, dad went just the way he wanted. Uh, and uh, if he could come back, he would shake your hand. And, and so that's, that's, you know, one approach. And I'm, I'm sure that kind of thing is used in hospice as well. And sure. physicians are using more and more aggressive uh, sedation at the end, uh, even to the point of unconsciousness for somebody that is in extreme pain or extreme distress. Uh, and and that is uh, perfectly acceptable. In in the state of Washington, they do allow um, a prescription to be written if somebody is terminal within six months, certified by two physicians, made a couple of requests written and oral, and they can get um, a supply of medication to hasten their death. Mm -hmm. But they have to self-administer it. A physician cannot. Uh, administer it and does not even have to be there when the uh, person takes the uh, medication. Uh, I've never prescribed that. Um, I, I have kind of mixed feelings. I'm, I'm all about autonomy and uh, patient choice. Um, so I, I, in that sense, I'm not against it. Um, I am a little bit of a libertarian on that thing. I'm not sure why the government needs to rule uh, how we are going to die. Uh, on the other hand, I, I worry about expanding the criteria. You know, are we going to begin to use it on the elderly and the disabled and that kind of thing? And where it's where it's it's in law in about eight or nine states now. Uh, California was the big one, and it started in in Oregon. And where I live, actually, there's I mentioned in the book. There's been four people I know that have opted for hastening their death. Some people call it assisted suicide. Some people call it medical aid in dying. Uh, you know, it has various names attached to it. But um, one lady was 90. She had acute leukemia onset. Uh, she did not want to undergo chemotherapy. And she said, you know, I'm ready to go. I've had a, had a full life. I don't see a point in just suffering. Uh, the family was on board with her. And uh, so she passed away. 
peacefully after taking the overdose. And the family actually felt so strongly about her choice that they presented this to our whole retirement community here about her choice and why she made that choice. On the other hand, uh, another resident with Lou Gehrig's disease uh, was much more quiet. And I, I think the family never said exactly what happened. But mm-hmm. um, So I, I think it's a choice. It, it can have either positive or negative impact on the caregivers um, because one fellow's wife, he chose to do that and died with her in his apartment with other present, but she still feels that he went too soon. So I, I think it's like all of our choices. It, it's uh, nuanced. Only in Washington, only about one out of 300 deaths are related to mm-hmm. utilizing death with dignity. So it's not a, um, a prevalent thing. And I think with the advent of hospice and palliative care, it's, it's much less utilized. Um, although, and I know most hospice units would not support death with dignity. I, th- I think they don't want to be directly involved or identified with it. And I, I certainly understand that. They're, the, the national organization that supports death with dignity is Compassion and Choices, and they have chapters in, in every state. And they, I, I think when physicians in the community identify somebody, they will refer them to End of Life Washington, and then they have medical providers and a network of physicians and social workers, others that can support them in their choice. Uh, Doctor, I think your book brings a lot uh, to the discussion of death and dying in America. Uh, Could you talk to our listeners uh, why they need this book? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's lots of books. In fact, somebody wrote to me and said, why do we need another book on death and dying? And, and uh, you know, the, the website, um, the Conversation Project, has a, the 10 top books on end of life. So my book is a book of stories. And I, I honestly think people relate to stories better than they do. You know, you should do this, that, that, and have a checklist for everything. I, I do try to cover the issues of advanced directives and forms, and I have a little index in the back that people can refer to, to websites. But people that have read it and given me feedback saying the stories really resonate with them. And when I was in the intensive care unit and I would have a very family and they were struggling to figure out what to do, I would often say, you know, I've had somebody just like your mother that was here a few weeks ago. And then they they would kind of say, okay, well, what did they do then? Or what did why did they choose this? You know, so depersonalized a little bit, uh, or they could relate to the other and then begin to apply it back to their own situation. Um, so um, I in a way I wanted to just get these stories out there. I, I feel I've had a very rich life with a lot of experiences, uh, some of them uh, overseas, some of them in, in, with my own family, some of them in, in the intensive care unit. And I, I tried to talk a little bit toward the end of the book about resilience. And I, I put a, a few stories with humor in it because I wanted to make it uh, a little bit uplifting. 
uh, like the time we had a dog that showed up in the operating room, you know. So I, <laughs> I wanted to have people not be a downer, but but just uh, let's let's think about this. Let's talk about this because it's going to happen to all of us. Thank you for this this book and the stories and uh, the life that you have given us today. So I just want to ask you about that. I mean, do you sense, do you see your, your, your medicine career as a ministry of, uh, as a ministry, a call to ministry? Yeah, I actually think I use that term ministering to patients, uh, early on in the book. And, um, you know, I, I try to stay humble with this. I, I don't think that I'm special, that, that, um, I, I think God wants us to have this strong sense of self, but uh, on the other hand, to say that where does that power really come from? Uh-huh. It, it really comes from God, and uh-huh. so as long as we can acknowledge that, I think that helps us to, to to stay humble in our activity. But I I do just feel good uh, about being able to talk, and you know, if I just have, have had. Some of the comments I've gotten back have said, you know, it was really worth writing that book, all that effort, you know, if I can get that kind of feedback. Um, so I, I feel very blessed to have that opportunity. Thank you very much for joining us here. Well, thank you. I read a little bit about your background, and I must say you're just an amazing person, Saul. So. Uh, thank you. <laughs> he, he, and he's even better in person. <laughs> <laughs> That was Dr. Jim Demain, the author of Facing Death, Finding Dignity, Hope, and Healing at the End. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting Studio in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com. 